Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis 3, 20 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we're so grateful that we get to call you Father, and that you're faithful, that you make promises and you keep them, that you are utterly reliable when so much around us is not. God, we're also that we are thankful for the many veterans here and, and in the city and the state and the, and the country, and we pray that we would be grateful and uh, also active. They've fought and they've sacrificed for so much that we take for granted today. Many of those freedoms seem to be less confident than they were even a year ago, and so we pray for our country Pray for stability, pray for wisdom, pray for righteousness, pray that you would preserve our democracy. Especially that we'd be able to do what you call us to do, gather here and talk about Jesus freely and openly. You got to pray for our students as they begin to wrap up and begin to finish up in various ways that will look different than it did a year ago, that they would stay strong, that they would see their work, their studies as worship, because all of life is worship and it's not just working toward the exam, working toward the paper, but it's actually loving you with all of their minds. And so give them perseverance to finish well. And God, as we finish up this series on foundations from these first three chapters of your book, I'm just reminded afresh how clear your word is and how different Christianity is than modern day America. And so I pray for us as we move on from these realities that you would steal our ribs, that we would stand strong. So many of the things we've talked about, that you've talked about, uh, are attacked and hated today. And so I pray for the people that can hear my voice, that we would be a strong, winsome, gracious, humble, but bold, countercultural people for the sake of your name. How firm a foundation we have. We, the saints, your saints, the saints of the Lord, that is laid for our faith in this, your excellent word. Shape us today as we open it once again. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, foundations are really important. Uh, the family and I, we were able to be in Austin recently, and we were at the Texas History Museum. And right next to the History Museum, they're building this massive 12-story capital complex that we knew nothing about until we were there. And it was fascinating. So we just sat back and observed. And there were about a 1,000 workers. I don't know if they were all on site or not. That's just what we read. There were hundreds on the ground floor of one level. And just they had three massive cranes. And it was just fascinating to see all that was involved because they're on the foundation level, on the ground level, 12 stories up. It's vital that they get the foundation right. If you don't get the foundation right, you're in trouble. Some of you Abilene homeowners had a painful amen to that statement. Well, today we finish up the series on foundations, the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 3, that we started back in August, and we've called it 
foundations and many foundation stones have been laid. And so before we finish up, I want to do a little bit of review, a little bit of summary of all the different foundation stones that we've seen so far. Probably could add to it, but here are 15. Number one, God is the creator of all things. Very first verses of the book, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this world is not a result of chance, random, impersonal processes. This world is a result of the wise design of God. Number two, because he's the creator, this is God's world. And he cares about it. He cares about the material world. That's why he created it. The Christian church really from its inception has been infected and affected by that ancient heresy called Gnosticism, which at root says the spiritual stuff is good and the material stuff is bad. Spirit is good, body bad. Spiritual realm good, material world bad. That is thoroughly unbiblical through and through. Right here in the beginning, God creates. And of course, the end goal of creation is physical. It's resurrection. It's a new heavens and new earth. So this material world matters. Number three, because he's the creator, he has all authority. He created this world. He created us. Therefore, he has the authority to tell us how to live. Number four, because he's the creator, he knows best. Not only does he have the authority to tell us how to live, it's the good life that he tells us how to live. His design is best. His design is wise. His way actually leads to our best. It leads to human flourishing. That's why at the very first commandment of the Bible in verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And so anywhere we have a command of God, it's a blessing. We've got to train our minds again, as the world says, the opposite. It's the good life. Number five, all humans are made in the image of God. And then, you know, there are various heresies and movements at all times, there always has been for the history of the church. And I think that today, the doctrine that is being most attacked is this doctrine. You can look at various times, like during the Reformation time, it was on grace, justification. You can go back a thousand years and look in the 300s and 400s, it was the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of the Trinity, there's always been attacks on the Bible, always has been, always will be. And I think today, more than any other doctrine, it's the doctrine of mankind, the image of God, anthropology, which, by the way, is what Saturday is going to be all about. Saturday's Abilene Theology Conference, college students in particular, I need, I'm going to invite you to come, urge you to come, high school students, come, parents, come. This is the way of the cultural wins. And so you need to be ahead of the game. Honestly, we're already behind the game. It's already infiltrated the universities, even the Christian ones. So I want to invite you to come because what it's doing is undermining this very doctrine, the image of God. All people made in God's image, therefore worthy of dignity and respect because of that fact, regardless of background and, and wealth and skin color. Number six, humans are created gendered, binary genders, male and female. It's right there in chapter one, verse 27. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Again, extremely countercultural, surprisingly so. Number seven, the cultural mandate, that which we saw in Genesis 128, 
remains a fundamental calling for mankind. Let me quote Nancy Piercy once again, speaking of this passage here in Genesis 1.28. She says, the first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, build families and churches and schools and cities and governments and laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops and build bridges and design computers and compose music. The passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. Extremely important for us to view our vocations, whatever they may be, in light of Genesis 1. Of course, we add to it with Matthew 28. But this is important and it remains a fundamental calling. I love the way the message paraphrases these verses. The message says, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, prosper. Or as we talked about in the sermon, make babies, make culture, build for God's glory. Eighth foundation stone, work is significant. Work has dignity. Work is is a pre-fall reality. It's a creation ordinance. It's what we're made for. Genesis 2.15, he puts them in the garden and says, work it and keep it. Now, we saw last week, because of the curse, work's hard. Work is often unfulfilling and frustrating. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It means we need to work through it. And part of it is viewing it as good. Good for us, good for our neighbors, ultimately good for the world and for God's glory. Ninth foundation stone. The institution of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime is the foundation of society. Striking, isn't it? As we walk through Genesis 1, you have the creation of the world, you have the creation of mankind, you have the various callings and commandments, and then before sin enters the world, you have this climactic statement in verse 24 of chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, not everyone's called to marriage. Many are called to celibacy. And we saw a few weeks ago that, in fact, there are some distinct advantages to celibacy in terms of freedom to serve the Lord. But for most, marriage will be God's will. And so we need to take it seriously. We need to fight for healthy marriages. And we need to fight against unbiblical definitions. We need to value it. It's the foundation of society. Tenth, we saw that autonomy is satanic. Do you remember the lies of the Satan? He comes in and he says, basically, God doesn't know what he's talking about. Did God really say? I know he, he said whatever, but listen, you ought to push him aside. You ought to be the one who defines what is good and what is evil. Don't listen to him. Autonomy means self-ruling and that's always been his lie. You ought to be self-rulers and it's a lie from the pit. It doesn't lead to flourishing. It leads to destruction. We're to be ruled by God through his word. And again, that's the good life. Number 11, one of the main tactics that the enemy has always used and will always use is to distort and to question and then to deny the word of God. 12th, we learn about original sin. We're born sinful because of the fall of Adam and Eve. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Thirteenth foundation stone, not only we are sinful and broken, the whole world is broken. The whole world is cursed. 
just last night, turn on the news. And again, I told you at our house, we just called the news Genesis 3. Let's see what's on Genesis 3. And so last night we turn it on and literally the news starts. And so they're going to give us whatever, you know, they're going to draw us in, stay on K-Texas. So here's what you got coming. We've got a shooting in Abilene. We've got a spike in COVID-19 numbers. And we've got a tsunami making its way to wherever. I don't even remember. Well, there you go. Why? Why is the world that way? Because of sin. The whole world is fallen. Fourteen foundation stone, we learn that not only is mankind made in the image of God and not only are they gendered, but there's actually different and distinct roles and responsibilities given to the man and given to the woman. Both created equal, both in the image of God, but we saw that the fundamental domain and calling of the man is to to lead and to love and to provide and to protect. We saw the fundamental domain and calling of a woman is to be a nurturer and a mother and a wife, Genesis 3.16, and a helper and a life giver. 15. We saw that life is war. We saw that there will be this perpetual enmity between the people of God and those who oppose God, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. But in that same verse, we saw that there is certain victory. Because the offspring of the woman will ultimately crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. In fact, he's done that at the cross and resurrection. Which leads us to today where we finish out Genesis chapter 3 and really with the last and final stone. And it's really the cornerstone. And it's that God must and will provide a sacrifice to cover our shame. Let's consider the naming of Eve the provision of God, and the beginning of exile. So first, the naming of Eve in Genesis 3.20. Look with me there. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now remember, this is the second time he named her. He named him before the fall and named her after the fall. Before the fall, there in verse 23, he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Isha, taken out of man, Ish. But here, he names her Eve, which means life. Her name will be life. Why? Because she will be the mother of all living. But hold on, wait a minute. Have we been reading the same book? This verse is so out of nowhere that I read of a liberal commentator this week who didn't think it was actually there. It was added later. Just look at the context. I mean, look at the verse right before this. Look at verse 19 there at the end. You're dust and to dust you shall return. And you remember what God said in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, that if the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die because of their disobedience. They deserve death, and death is now certain because of sin. The wages of sin is death. So isn't it audacious that Adam was named his wife life because she's the mother of all living? They were just told death would be the norm. Death is actually a more appropriate name in this context than life, isn't it? Well, it's only as audacious as the promises of God because Adam believed the promise. He believed the promise of Genesis 3.15, that first gospel announcement, what theologians call the proto-euangelion, the first gospel in 3.15, that there would be an offspring who would defeat evil. Adam trusts that God will make good on that promise. 
Here we have the beginning of hope. He knows who God is. He knows God is for them. He's already experienced so much grace. He knows God will make things right. I love this response from Adam. They're just told how hard life was going to be, right? 16 to 19 are the curses. They're going to have problems with childbearing and conflict in marriage and the ground is cursed. Their fruitfulness would be frustrated. And how does Adam respond? He renames his wife based on the bright hope of tomorrow. That first naming was based upon her origin. She came from man. But the second naming is about destiny. He looks at his wife and he deliberately chose not to look at her in light of what she had done or in light of the consequences her sin would bring about. He's no longer passive. He's no longer blame shifting. Do you remember that? Chapter 3, verse 12. This is all that woman you gave me. Well, no longer blame shifting. Adam's becoming a man. And remember, the heart of biblical masculinity is a refusal to make excuses. He could have named her something like, ah, her name shall be, she blew it. I shall call her the Grim Reaper, the Death Bringer. But no, instead he names her in light of the integrity of God himself. This right here is promise-fueled grit for the glory of God. He could have cowered down. He could have quit. He could have resigned. Times are going to be hard. Everything that you're called to do and your fundamental responsibilities now are going to be frustrated. Instead, he believes the promise of God. He knew who God was, knew his power. He knew that God was good. He knew that God was gracious. And so he keeps his head up and he keeps on doing what he was called to do. 2020 has been tough, hasn't it? And it's been tough like in so many ways. I mean, I think that's part of why 2020 has been tough. It's not like we've got one thing going on, right? We've got so many things happening right now in our world on top of the normal hardship of life. I saw a shirt last week and it was 2020. Then it had the five stars underneath and it was one star. Not good. Do not recommend. It's been a hard year for many of us. Sad thing is it may get worse. But let's learn from Adam. Adam trusts God. Adam knows who God is. And friends, we now know so much more than Adam knows. We know who God is. We've seen now the cross and resurrection. We know that he keeps his promises. We know that he's for us. We know that he says he will finish what he started. And we know that it's actually in the hard times is where the secret sauce is for our own sanctification, right? Anchor verses here, Romans 8, 28, 29. If you don't know him, get to know him. God works all things together for the good of those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Here's the good, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You believe that church in 2020, that God's working through all things, that he might make you more like his son? So hard though, isn't it? But when we believe this and we have the right perspective and we know who God is, we ought to actually invite the tribulation. Because God sanctifies us and shapes our character in the hard times in a way that he just doesn't do in the good times. C.S. Lewis said, he speaks in the good times, he shouts in the pain. The naming of Eve. Second, let's look at the provision of God in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam 
And for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. Remember, originally they were naked and unashamed. But after they sinned, they tried to hide, right? They tried to cover themselves. Look over at chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So for the very, this is really tragic. For the very first time, they felt shame. Previously unknown, guilt enters their hearts and it's darkened. And really ever since then, ever since this garden incident, our fallen tendency is to do the same. Our fallen tendency is to hide Rather than be honest, we we put up a mask, we put up a front, we stiff arm, we're ashamed. And so what do they do? They make underwear out of fig leaves. Had to itch. Out of their own pathetic resources, they try to cover their shame. They try to cover their nakedness. But God sees that fig leaves are not sufficient for his people. So he kills an animal. And he clothes them with garments of skin. By the way, notice that they only got clothes after sinning in the world. Therefore, laundry is a result of the fall. Can I get a witness? <laughs> so God, God comes in and he meets their immediate need, but he also meets their ultimate need. He clothes them sufficiently and he covers their shame. And he covers their shame from animal skins. Do you realize this would have been the first time They saw death. The first instance of death in God's good worlds. Just like that first feeling of shame, that first sight of death would have jolted the first couple. Something had to die to cover my shame. Blood shed for the first time that God would provide for me. And here we have this principle of substitution. This glorious theme that unites the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You see hints of it all over the place. I mean, here in just a couple chapters, you're going to have God call Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And God provides a ram in the thicket that would take the place of his son Isaac. And then, of course, we have the whole sacrificial system in the law. Various offerings made to atone for sin and to atone for iniquity. Then we have the Day of Atonement. Then you have the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which is the first time it's not an animal, but now a human. This man of sorrows who would bear our grief, who would carry our sorrows, who would be pierced for our transgressions, who would be crushed for our iniquities. See, God does for them what they cannot do for themselves. They can't deal with their shame. Not on their own. They need a substitute. God must provide And these animal skins here, they're a gracious foreshadowing of the substitutionary work of the Son of God, the Son who did not deserve death, but suffers in our place, lived a perfect life, the only one who never sinned. We call it justification. It's the heart of the gospel. 
Two things really happen when we trust Christ. When we turn from our sin and trust in Christ, there's this negative aspect that our guilt is removed. Our sin is taken away. But that's just the negative. He doesn't leave us with a blank slate. He actually requires perfection that none of us can attain. So not only does he forgive our sins, he also credits us with the righteousness of his son. Jesus lived perfectly. And so when we trust Christ, our sins are forgiven and God counts us as righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love the way Philippians 3 puts it. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is gift righteousness. God demands righteousness. We can't do it. So he provides what he demands. He provides what we cannot provide for ourselves. He clothes us with the righteousness of his son when we trust him. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We believe in Jesus and we're credited, counted as righteous. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He provides what we cannot provide for ourselves. He covers our shame. He gives grace here in the midst of judgment, hope in the midst of death. He's the provider, provides our immediate need and he provides our ultimate need. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The word means lack. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Jesus says, don't worry, little flock. God feeds the birds of the air and he arrays the lilies of the field with glory. God will take care of you. The provision of God. Third, we see the beginning of exile. Look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, because they believed the lie of the serpent and they believed that they knew better. They believed they should be the ones that, that call the shots. They sought autonomous knowledge because they tried to take his place. The triune God exiles them, removes them from his presence, kicks them out. East of Eden, paradise lost. They were called to guard the garden and now they will, the garden will be guarded from them. See, we were created to have fellowship with God. That's why we exist. Remember Genesis 2, it has that open-endedness, that seventh-day rest that never had. This is evening, this is morning. This is what we were to do, created to live with him, to have fellowship with him, God's people and God's place under God's rule, spreading God's presence and glory all over the earth, starting here in Eden, now removed. In so many ways, really, the rest of the Bible is trying to get us back. 
How do we get back to fellowship with God? How do we get back to paradise? How do we get back to Eden? There's a lot of ways you can summarize the story of scripture. You can do it through the biblical covenants. I mentioned last week, there's creation, fall, redemption, new creation that summarizes the big picture. But there's another way, and that is creation, sin, exile, restoration. And you see this pattern repeated throughout the whole Bible, creation, sin, exile, restoration. We see it right here, exiled because of sin from Eden. And then they're in exile in Egypt. And then they do enter the promised land, but what happens? They sin. And they're exiled and they're captive, really most of their history because of idolatry to Assyria and then Babylon and eventually Rome, kicked out of God's presence. At one point, they have the temple, that special place where God dwells, and Ezekiel, because they're saying God leaves. He leaves the temple. And then it's destroyed and they rebuild it. And you know, God never returned to that temple. And even when they were in the land and they were being faithful and there was the temple, Most people had no access to God's presence. There was wall upon wall, layer upon layer. And there was that most holy place where God especially dwelt. And only one man, a priest, could enter. And only one time a year. Access denied. Exiled. But it wouldn't always be that way. Creation, sin, exile, restoration. There's this refrain, this covenant formula that goes from Genesis to Revelation where God promises, I will be your God and you shall be my people and I will dwell with you. Starts here in Genesis 17 to Abraham and then in the law in Leviticus where he has these blessings if they obey. Leviticus 26 says this, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Then the prophet Jeremiah says, I'll give them, as they're in exile, he says, I'll give them a heart to know that I'm the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Jeremiah 30, you shall be my people, I will be your God. And then Jeremiah 31, a passage I hope you know, this passage is really important for us. For one, it's the the longest Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews 8, but we also celebrate this. This is what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper every month. Jeremiah speaking to his future. Now our past says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the old covenant, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It's a promise that this sacrificial system that they knew so well would one day come to an end because there would be a final sacrifice. Prophet Ezekiel says the same, that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The prophet Zechariah, many nations, Gentiles will join themselves to the Lord. That's us in that day. And shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. That's what Jesus comes to do. Restore his people around 
himself to end the exile caused by sin. And what we learn is that the problem really never was Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Rome. We're not enslaved to those today, but we were in exile to the enemy back of them, which is Satan, sin, and death. So Jesus comes on the scene and he grants us access to the presence of God again. That's why in the very beginning of the Gospels, Matthew chapter 1, she calls his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's what atonement is about. At one meant. He's bringing peace. He's bringing us back. 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus came and died once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. There's that substitution. The righteous in place of the unrighteous. Why? 1 Peter 3.18, that he might bring us to God to end our exile. And we need it, right? Because on our own, we can't go to God. Sinners, all of us, we have no access. We're not welcome in the presence of God. Why? Because God is holy and we're sinful. And when holiness meets sin, the expression is wrath. So on our own, without a mediator, mankind tries to go to God. It doesn't go well. Wrath is the response. Rightful, righteous, holy wrath. And so we need a sacrifice. We need, we need a sacrifice that absorbs and averts God's wrath. You know what the Bible calls that? Propitiation. 1 John 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because of the gospel, we have access back into the presence of God. It's what he does. You know, as Jesus is dying towards the end of the gospel of Matthew, he's, he, he, he screams. He has this loud cry. And Matthew tells us that at that moment, the veil, the curtain of the temple, this very thick curtain that separated that most holy place of God's presence, that special place where God dwelt. It's that, that, that curtain separated that place from the rest of the people. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, that curtain tears in two. What is, what is God trying to tell us there? First off, it, it tears from top to bottom. So he wants us to know this is God doing. But he's also telling us now we have access into the most holy place. Access granted. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So because of this substitutionary sacrifice because of the sacrifice of our great high priest now we have access back to paradise that's really what the whole book of Hebrews is about Hebrews they're tempted to go back to Judaism and he's saying no no there's that's not the way and he tells them that Jesus our high priest has made a way listen to chapter 6 verse 19 we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place Behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Or from chapter 10, verse 19. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, the tearing of his flesh is the tearing of the curtain that separated us. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what's the response? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And so church, if you've trusted in Christ, you're forgiven. Your conscience is cleansed. Your guilt and your shame is cast away. You're clothed in the perfect righteousness of the son. And so when the father looks upon you, he is well pleased. You know why? Because your life is hidden in Christ's. Brought back into God's presence. Psalm 1611, in your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The good life. Is found following God's ways in God's presence because of the work of Christ. So church, that's Genesis 1 to 3. God created a good world, now cursed because of sin. Now the whole creation is fallen, it groans. And through the pains of childbirth, the promised offspring of the woman came and was faithful where Adam wasn't. This king wore a crown of thorns atop his head as a picture of the curse. And the resurrection shows that death doesn't have the last word. Death had no dominion over him. And so now the restoration, creation, sin, exile, restoration, the restoration of all things, Eden 2.0, it's begun with the resurrection of the second Adam. So for now, may we be faithful to have dominion, to take ground for Christ, seeking to spread his goodness and glory everywhere we go. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for your work. We need both. We need to hear what you call us to, but we also need the word of grace because we will fall short. We have fallen short. And so as we think about all these foundation stones that we see in Genesis 1 to 3, there's a most important stone. It's the cornerstone. It's the stone that is really the foundation for all the others. And that is the fact that you are a God of grace and a God of mercy. And you provide for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. Thank you for the grace of the gospel. May it be the cornerstone of our lives. May we, in light of it, have lips of praise and lives of praise for you are worthy. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.